Hello, welcome to another episode of The World As We Know It, a history and geography podcast where you're invited to an audio tour of each of the world's 197 states. My name is Kiki. Hi, I'm Brad. As always, (laughs) we're your hosts. This week, our discussion is on the nation of... Mongolia! Mongolia. Uh, Let's listen to that national anthem. with some overall thoughts and our initial familiarity ratings before we did our research. Brad, why don't you kick us off? So, Mongolia is a country that I feel like I should know a lot more about. So I think, oh, Mongolia, yeah. I think about the Mongols. I think about Genghis Khan. I think about, you know, the Genghis Khan campaigns in Age of Empires too. Um, <laughs> but when I sat down, I don't really know that much about it. I've watched... One doc about food in Mongolia and one movie um, called The Cave of the Yellow Dog. And I can picture life there, I think, but I don't know enough about it to say that I have a familiarity rating above like a three at most. So three. I'll say three. Um, I don't know why I'm using my NPR voice. Just kidding. I know. I'll just talk normal. I'm not going to focus on this. My FR rating is also very low for the same reasons. I feel like I should know more about the Mongolian Empire itself um, because in our studies of world history, we always hear about Mongol invaders, um, especially like in the Middle East and in India. We know about Genghis Khan um, as a a hero figure and as a villain figure. Uh, I feel like I know about yurts. I know about nomadic tribes. Um, they share a border with like Siberia and Russia, and so there's some like cultural overlap there, but also with China. Um, we know about like the Huns, which were not Mongolians necessarily, but had influence in that kind of like who's trying to defeat, defeat China now. Yep. <laughs> uh, so I, I do feel like I should know more about Mongolia, and I don't, and I feel guilty about it. I feel like I owe Mongolia more. Um, I will say one of my favorite foods. This is like a white bullshit exploitation thing. Is Mongolian barbecue? Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, there was like this like hole in the wall place that my mom used to. Get, my mom and I used to go to all the time. Like she'd pick me up from school because she was hungry for it, and I would just like <laughs> skip out on my last few classes and we'd go eat at Mongolian barbecue. Um, there's also Hu Hot, which is a national Mongolian barbecue chain. It's not as good. They don't even serve, like, real noodles. They just have, like, spaghetti. And they're like, hey, mm-hmm. enjoy your Italian spaghettis instead of, like, Asian noodles. Anyway, I feel like you could probably do better if you go to Hua than what I've done when I've been there. It's not their fault. Um, and we also went to a place called Genghis Grill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's a Genghis Khan-themed Mongolian <laughs> barbecue restaurant. Spit on the nose. Um, and, yeah, my mom and I used to go there a lot, except for one time I went there, and their broccoli tasted like shellfish. And um, I yeah I puked for hours and I we complained to their manager and they only comped my meal and I'm like they should comp everybody's meal because there's definitely something wrong with your broccoli if it tastes like shellfish. Uh, but anyway, that's well, what I know. What was your FR rating again? 
Two. Two, okay. Because <laughs> the broccoli. Because <laughs> the broccoli the broccoli knocked it down. It knocked some of the knowledge out of my head when I was puking my brains out. Um, yeah. And, and, like, I want to know more about Genghis Khan, especially after research. Like, what an what an interesting guy. Um, he did a lot. And, and a his lot whole people. life, his whole life, like, reads like this huge epic novel that you wouldn't believe unless, like, hmm. if someone was writing it themselves. So... Yep, can't wait to get into this history. All right, we'll give you a snapshot and we'll get into it. Yeah, so we're going to take our snapshot so we get a good general idea of what Mongolia is like. All right. Con- oh, also, did you know? You'll probably get into this in your snapshot. Oh, teach me. They don't share a border with Kazakhstan. There's like 20 no, miles no, in between. Was... Oh, sorry. Yeah. I totally thought that there was just like this little butthole that connected. There's like no... a little sphincter between the two. There's not. All right. So on that note. All right. So the country of Mongolia. Their anthem, which you heard a little bit of earlier, is just called the National Anthem of Mongolia. And it's reproduced here in Mongolian Cyrillic, which I cannot read, but that's all it says. Um, so Mongolia is a landlocked country in East Asia. Um, its area now is roughly equivalent to the historical territory of Outer Mongolia. And that term is also sometimes used to refer to its current state. It's sandwiched between China to the south and Russia to the north. And as Kiki mentioned, it does not share a border with Kazakhstan. Only 23 miles separates them at this little tiny juncture. Um, so it, it's the 18th largest um, sovereign state in the world at uh, 1.5 million square kilometers. The next biggest country after this actually is Peru. So that's a pretty big gap. Wow. Okay. And it's right after Iran. Iran has more land area. And it's the most sparsely populated uh, unitary sovereign state in the world with um, a very large area, but only around 3 million people as far as the population is concerned. It's the second largest landlocked country behind Kazakhstan, and the largest landlocked country that does not border like a closed sea. Then maybe I was wrong about the fun fact I just shared. (laughs) Um, The country contains very little arable land. It's mostly grassy steppe, uh, with mountains to the north and the west, and the Gobi Desert to the south. Um, Its capital is at Ulaanbaatar, or Ulaanbaatar, um, and it, that that, that um, city contains 45% of the country's population. Mm-hmm. Um, Ulaanbaatar shares the designation as the world's coldest capital city, along with Moscow, Utawa, and Astana. So it's very cold in Ulaanbaatar, and there's a lot of people there. The official languages of Mongolia are Mongolian. Um, their scripts are Cyrillic and Mongolian script. And Mongolian script is really, really interesting looking. It's Ooh. beautiful. It's um, look like Arabic, but more with like with harsher bold lines, and it's up and down. I think it's gorgeous. Um, the ethnic groups therein are ninety six percent Mongols and four percent Kazakhs. Um, the religion, the religious makeup is fifty three percent Buddhist, three thirty eight point six percent non religious, three percent Islam. 2.9% shamanism, I think that may refer to some of the native uh, religions, 2.2% Christian, and others are make up 4.4%. The demonyms are Mongolian or Mongol, although I think Mongolian sounds better. Mongol sounds antiquated, just to me. Mongol works um, because Mongolian just means like of Mongol. Of Mongol? Yeah. Um, the government is a unitary semi-presidential republic, interesting. The president is Kalt. Magin Batulga, and the prime minister is here. We go. Uknagin. There's a lot of double vowels in these guys. Uknagin 
Kurelsuk. Kurelsuk. I can't help you. Um, they have a legislator that's called the State Great Kural, which sounds awesome. Nice. Talk about the area. It's 1.5 million square kilometers. Population is a little bit above 3 million. And their currency is the Togrog. Nice. Uh, another interesting thing about them, just as far as a snapshot's concerned, uh, approximately 30% of their population is nomadic or semi-nomadic. Uh, you know, people joke about like yurts and stuff, but that's a really big thing. I mean, the, the, Yeah, the, they're all on the move. They the, the don't mo- settle. The moving yurts, the horse culture is still very, very integral. Um, they're always moving on these, these large grassy steps following either you know herd animals or um, stuff like that. Um, all the rest that I have to say, um, I don't know if you're going to get into the etymology of Mongolia and the history. Should we look that oh, up? Oh, you can go ahead. Um, I'll, I'm going to look that up while you get into the history. Yeah, I think yeah. it's pretty self-explanatory because, I mean, we know that the suffix ia is like land of. So it's Mongolia's land of the Mongols. Okay. Um, and we'll get into the Mongol people as they are and like their tribes therein. Um, because we know that the Mongol Empire began when all the tribes in the Mongolian region were united under the Great Khan, or our boy Genghis. And I found a cool footnote here. So Mongolian denotes nationality. So you can be Mongolian, but like also Kazakh or Tuvan, while Mongol indicates Mongol ethnicity. So you can be a Mongol, Mongolian. Because yeah. also like we look at places like Kazakhstan, which is, I mean, Stan we know means land of, and so it's land of the Kazakhs, but more than just Kazakh people live there. But if you're going to say, like, uh, I met a, 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 Kaz, a man from Kazakhstan or a Kazakhstani, it could be anybody in those tribes, even if they're not Kazakh themselves. <sighs> All right. The history. So this is going to go a little bit more like our earlier episodes. It's going to be a little more quick and dirty. Um, as I'm a primarily nomadic people from, from very early on, there isn't a lot of recorded history that stays put a lot of this oral tradition that's passed down. And I think a lot of their story is told in their big figures. Mm-hmm. Not only Genghis Khan, but some other people that we're going to mention. Um, some national heroes that do unify um, a pretty independently tribal nation or country. So we're going to start in prehistory, uh, as we do. Uh, and guess what? Homo erectus. A guy we haven't seen in a while, not a Homo sapien, lived there from 850,000 years ago. So primitive humans early on were living in Siberia in this Mongol area very long ago. Uh, and then human people, <laughs> Homo sapiens is what I originally put. <laughs> it's, just kind of, it's just kind of rude. It seems a little elitist. <laughs> um, so Homo sapiens moved there during the Upper Paleolithic around 40,000 years ago. And these people had cave paintings similar to those at Lascaux. So they painted mammoths, lynx, Bactrian camels, and ostrich on their cave walls. Uh, and they also had Venus figurines that we've seen. Remember, like, our, our girl? Venus of Villendorf. Yeah, Venus of Villendorf. They had those. Our girl. She's yeah. Like my girl. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a kinship with her. as another robust lady. Um, so these figurines were found in northern Russia, or northern Mongolia, which is now Russia. But uh, at the time they were found, it was part of northern Mongolia. And we also know that these borders are kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because it is Siberia, it's, it's sparsely populated. Never heard a border make that sound, but... <laughs> that means, um, it, it means what it sounds like. Anyway. Ephemeral. Changing. Um, so agricultural settlements sprung up around 50, 
500 to 3500 BC. So there were agricultural settlements, but even from like the very early ages, this was still very nomadic. So people weren't settling down and planting very much because there's not a lot of arable land. Um, Rocky, grassy yeah, steppe. It's, it's tough. Yeah, it's a tough place to live. And I guess this is what I'm going to be referring to for most of this podcast. It's like the Dothraki Sea. They don't want to plant. They can be on the move. And I think that goes into the Mongolian grill too. It's like that is something that you can like throw on. It's not, it doesn't require a lot of crops or a lot of like vegetables. Yeah, you can just put some meat or some noodles or some like storable stuff on a hot grill. Anyway, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm <laughs> stupid. I think you're making up, trying to make up excuses why the broccoli wasn't very good. Yeah, well, that's They're not arable. <laughs> anyway, so... The agricultural settlements did predate the nomads. However, um, it pretty much faded out. And then horse riding culture begins, like as there's evidence that people were riding horses, uh, 3,500 to 2,500 years BC, um, mostly in the mountain regions. Um, and we also know, like, I think horses did originate, I mean, in Africa and then in the Middle East. So they kind of moved east with these horses and horses give you such a huge advantage when you're on these grassy steps. All right, so pastoral nomads in the Jiangyu. Uh, I have my note here. Not big into growing, very big into showing. Well, this is a quick and dirty history. It is a quick and dirty history. Um, because they created these huge confederations of nomadic tribes that, like, I mean, there's a lot of warfare between them, um, and there was not a lot of unification, but, like, there's basically huge armies on the move all the time, you know, creating more territory and fighting for more territory and... and taking down their enemies, also like the Dothraki. <laughs> um, and there was once an imperial, uh, an imperial army to like come together and fight off others. And the number one guy, our first big historical figure, his name was Modu Shanyu. And this is in 209 BC. And here's the thing. It's like people say like Shanyu, like from Mulan. And to that I say, maybe? Because in Mulan, we know that they were the Huns, not the Mongols that they were fighting off. But there's a lot of similarities, uh, including like horseback, fighting with arrows, um, and trying to defeat the Great Wall, which make this guy, Shan Yu, seem like maybe he was modeled. He was the model after the, the villain. And he, like that's also the thing, too. Is like when we're looking at Mulan, it's from the Chinese perspective. Uh, and then we look at Shan Yu and it's from the Mongol perspective. Probably not historically accurate. And it's probably not historically accurate because of um, cultural Disney. exploitation and Disney and stuff. But anyway, so 209 BC, Modu Shan Yu becomes the Xiangnu, or I think it's Shangnu, ruler after ordering the execution of his father, Tuman. And he unifies the tribes in the Mongolian Manchurian grassland um, because the Qin forces in China under General Ming, Meng Tian. Uh, were invading pastoral lands. Uh, Meng Chan was the guy who began the Great Wall to okay. keep these people out. And so, like, when we look at it, it's like, Chinese keeps pressing into these grassland areas, and they're fighting back. Neither one is right. Neither one is wrong. It's what happens when there's a border and people press into it. Yeah. That's where the Great Wall starts. Um, and then when the Qin Emperor dies, Shan Yu goes real hard into Chinese land. And I have another note, a whole slide, actually, about Shan Yu. Um, has, he's, got a, he's a dick. <laughs> But he's a powerful dick. <laughs> I'm just going to shake my head. Um, so his whole story is according to the historical book, the Sima Qian. Modu was a gifted child, um, but his father wanted another one of his sons to be his successor. Um, and to eliminate his son as a competitor, he sent him to the Yuji as a hostage. The Yuji were a, uh, a, a rival group. 
then he attacked the Yuji in hopes that they would kill him in retribution. So he's like, have my son as a hostage for my good behavior, and then I'm going to behave badly. <laughs> <laughs> what a dick move. Yeah, because he's kind of an asshole. Um, but assholes beget other assholes. Uh, and then Moto was able to escape by stealing a fast horse, and then he returns to Xiangyu. And they welcome back as a hero, so it backfired on his dad. And then his dad, to reward him for his bravery, appoints him as the commander of 10,000 horsemen. Um, and then Modu really begins to shape his buddies. And of these 10,000 horsemen, um, and to bolster his own reputation, he gets a group of extremely loyal warriors. And to be oh, sure of their... You mean Dothraki blood riders? Yeah, so blood riders. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, to be sure of their loyalty, Moto orders his warriors to shoot his favorite horse, and those who refuse were executed. So he's like, you no. really love me? Kill my favorite horse. And like people are like... Uh, Wait, kill his favorite horse yeah. or their favorite no, horse? No, kill his horse. What the fuck? Um, which is like some weird like mental shit. Because the people who are like, we know we, do, you, we know we do, you want to kill your horse. And he's like, if I tell you to kill my horse, I'm telling you to kill my fucking horse. And so he kills those who don't do it. And then the next thing he does is with one of his favorite wives, and that poor girl. So they kill his wife, his favorite wife, because he has many. Well, she loved the horse, so she was ready to go. Yeah, that's I'm probably just kidding, it. I'm just um, <laughs> no, I'm so he has his, his warriors kill his wife, his and, uh, and then though he executed those who hesitated to obey. And then once he was very sure of the remaining warriors and their loyalty, he tells them to kill his father, uh, and they do. They kill him with a shower of arrows. So, with none of his followers failing to shoot at his command and he, him killing his father, he now proclaims himself Chan Yu of the Xiongnu, um, which is the leader of the Xiongnu. And after his self-proclaimed ascension as Chan Yu, he begins to eliminate those who would prove a threat to his newly acquired power. So, he kills his rival half-brother, his stepmother, um, and the other officials who refused to support him. And he, then... He cleaned house. Yep, he really, he really went for it. So after coming to power in 209 BCE, he begins to act on his ambitions, become sole ruler over the Central Asian steppes, and he finds substantial success through both military strength and clever strategy. So that was like the first time all these, this area had one unified ruler. And so his empire, the Xiongnu Empire, was followed by a Mongolic Xianbei Empire, then defeated by the Gokturks, which we remember from our Afghanistan and Tajikistan episode. Yep. Um, and this was succeeded by the Uyghur Khaganate, and then they were defeated by the Kurges. So, yeah, it, it doesn't stay together for very long. The Mongolic Khitans, not Khitans, not the settlers. <laughs> um, so these were descendants of the Xianbei, which were the followers of the Xiongnu. They ruled, so then we got back into Mongol rule for a time during the Liao Dynasty, and this is 907 to 1125 AD for those of you who are keeping track. So, mm -hmm. like, I mean, a long time passed between all of these successions. Uh, and then the Kamag Mongols took over after them. And then in the 12th century, a chieftain named Temujin unites the Mongol tribes under Manchuria in the Altai Mountains. We now know him as Genghis, Genghis motherfucking Khan. So a little bit more about Genghis Khan, because he is a, a global figure that we have all heard of. Um, not all of us know about it. And I feel like I don't know enough and I want to know more because this, his life plays out like a glorious, glorious play. Enlighten us, Kiki. So he lived from like 1162-ish to... 1227, which was the end of his rule also. And he rules as the first great Khan of the Mongol Empire from 1206 to 1227. 
Um, I also say no one recorded the date when he was born, but they definitely knew when he died. Oh, I have some cool shit about his grave. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, we'll hear about that later, I guess. So he grew up poor. Uh, He killed his half-brother for nailing his mom. Okay, so his dad died. Um, And then his older half-brother claims his right as, like, top man, and he starts having uh, relations with Genghis Khan's mother, who was not the mother of his half-brother. And then he gets really resentful over that for a long time. And then he marries a woman called Borta, I think is how I pronounce it, for a tribal alliance. She was kidnapped. He rescues her with his friend and former rival. Um, Borta was the only empress, so he always kept her as the top of all of his women, and he gave her honors. There was another woman who came pretty close, but he, B- B- Borta is his not one and only, but one of them. <laughs> anyway, uh, he also had like lots of other wives, consorts, and just randos around, along the way. Anyway, uh, so yeah, kills his half-brother. Uh, then he becomes more powerful. He unites the tribes, including the Naimans, the Merkites, the Tatars, Kamogs, Mongols, and the Karaites, who are all dicks to each other before, but he convinces them all through charisma and military power to join together and to create one giant empire. Um, and then, oh, also along the way, he allies himself to his father's sworn brother. And I just put as a note, Dothraki shit. <laughs> Tokrul, who was the Khan of the Karaites. So actually, he begins his his rise to power um, through Tokrul and, like, kind of elevates through there. And then he has some betrayals from his best friend. Again, I mentioned his wife was kidnapped. And he got yeah. to save her. Um, but the sworn brother stuff, this is very Dothraki when it comes to being on horseback. Oh, and yeah. then, like being a vicious vicious military power anyway so a little bit more about genghis khan because i'd like to spend more time on him but in the interest of time um we're not <laughs> well we can make the genghis cast next you know, genghis is con- is credited with bringing the silk road into one political environment so you may know the silk road is a trade path between the um i want to say the far east but that's antiquated but between like china and india uh into europe and so that goes mostly through mongolia and russia so that's like a huge like developmental point for the world as they knew it basically like all of the western world was affected by the silk road uh, the eastern world was the middle east yeah it, it oh, yeah. really branches that together um yeah, he believed in meritocracy as a leader and he was pretty tolerant of all kinds of like worldviews. so he's like yeah religions are cool um he always explained his policies very clearly to his soldiers so mm-hmm. that they didn't feel like they needed to question why they were doing something they understood why they were doing it which is a good internal motivation strategy for future managers out there Um, he's a very popular figure in mongolia today Um, he has mixed positive reviews in china and actually pretty positive views in japan that's why i like kangaskhan the pokemon (laughs) uh features is because like kangaskhan is a female mother oh it's like there's exclusively female pokemon with baby and it's because like kangaskhan's dick change the world <laughs> yeah he's the most prolific guy probably in history you know the most prolific but he's definitely up there he's up there um he, he has 16 million living descendants today that's eight percent of all men who are living in the former mongol empire uh and 0.5 of the male population world today world that's one powerful it's quantifiable penis. yeah um and then i guess so He's got a very negative image in the Middle East, particularly Iran, where he is seen as a destructive and genocidal warlord. He killed so many Iranian people 
uh, during his invasion of the Middle East that they didn't reach their pre-Mongol level of popular, uh, population until the mid-20th century. Jesus Christ. Um, so it makes sense that he's a controversial figure um, because when you have an extremely, extremely powerful empire and army that's just going around bloodthirsty, killing, raping, pillaging, etc. I mean, it looks good for those who are in power, but obviously for those who aren't, it's devastating in its yeah. worst degree. Um, so our boy Genghis <laughs> changed the world completely. Um, one guy, I think, it's, it's, it's incredible. Anyway, you wanted to say about his grave? Oh, yes. Yeah, so um, there's, there's this cool thing where um, apparently there's this Mongol tradition where like you're supposed to be buried in an unmarked grave. And um, in order so no one could find um, Genghis Khan's grave, like he died somewhere on like the the front, you know, in, in warfare, or like maybe it was part of like an infection from a arrowhead or whatever. Yeah, I heard he died from an infection from a war wound. So he dies, and then his um, his burial train, so no one would know exactly where he's buried. They they started going back to Mongolia from wherever he was to wherever he died, and they just destroyed and killed everyone in their path, so no one would know they were going. And then they buried him like in an unmarked place between like some river and some mountain in in Mongolia. I mean, no one knows where it is still, so it's still. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I think it's awesome that he's like anonymity, and apparently, um, at at his death, the Mongol Empire was the biggest continu- contiguous empire in the history of the world. I mean, I have a picture of it here. It stretches yeah. from everywhere to everywhere. It's huge. It surpassed I mean. the Roman Empire by like a lot. Oh yeah. We haven't even, we've barely talked about the Roman Empire on this podcast so far. Yeah. Um, which is good because I feel like we already know a lot about Western Civ and this is like, I feel like something that should have been far more emphasized um, in my studies growing up. Um, also, I wanted to mention that the Hazara people of Afghanistan are believed to be Mongol descendants uh, because of Genghis Khan and his army. Um, and that also contributes to like the negative image of Genghis Khan in the Middle East. But I read that as when I was talking about the Kite Runner, we talked about our Afghanistan book. We did. Um, because one of the characters, Hassan, is of Hazara descent. And they mentioned Genghis Khan because um, Hazara people have uh, almond-shaped eyes like the Mongol people. Hmm. Uh, so that's some cool stuff about Genghis Khan. Uh, continuing, life after Genghis never gets as good. So when Genghis dies, he divides his empire into four khanates um, among his sons. I mean, some of his sons were better in favor and some weren't, but he thinks that this is the way to go. I think history will tell us that it's probably not the better way to go to divide <laughs> your empire among your kids. Probably not. Um, the great khanate becomes the Yuan dynasty under um, Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan. Also, when I read that first, I was like, yeah, Cobra Khan. Like from the Karate Kid. <laughs> Kiki, no. <laughs> anyway, um, so Yuan Dynasty, that also shares um, in Chinese history very heavily as well. Yuan is replaced by the Ming Dynasty, and then the Mongols are pushed out of China back into the north, closer to Mongol Empire today. Then in the 16th century, Dayan Khan reunites the Mongol Empire under the Genghisids. Uh, I spelled that wrong on my side, but it's like, I, I was like, it's Genghis kids. <laughs> Probably not, though. Um, Alten Khan meets the Dalai Lama and introduces Tibetan Mongolia, uh, Tibetan Buddhism to Mongolia. It says for the second time. So it was a very poorly constructed sentence because you can't really introduce for yeah. the second time. Um, but that's when, under his rule, he becomes a Buddhist, establishes a lot of monasteries, and Buddhism gets really big. And as we learned in our snapshot, it's still the most popular religion in the country today. Oh, yeah, by far. 
Um, the last Mongol Khan was Ligdin Khan in the early 17th century, and then the Manchus and the Qing Dynasty of China take over. Um, Manchus, that's from like Manchurian, it's a geographical region in northern China, um, later to be invaded by Japan. It's what people may associate, like, oh, the Manchurian candidate, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then under the Qing Dynasty, there's big time war and famine, something like 40% of like Ligdin's Khan's defendants, they all die. Um, and the Manchus, like, they're they're pretty hands-off, which is in the favor of the ethnically Mongol people. Mm-hmm. Um, Mongolia is given relative autonomy under the Qing dynasty, and the Manchu disallowed Chinese migration, migration into the area, so Mongolian culture stayed basically intact. Um, so they got to keep a lot of, like, their nomadic things. No one was trying to farm there. Uh, which is, I mean, when we talk about like colonization too, kind of a blessing that they said, just leave them alone. Yeah. Um, the T road through Siberia benefits the city of Urga, which is now Ulaanbaatar, the capital. Uh, so that trade route ma- maintains the connection to the West and the T that goes through Mongolia and Siberia. The Qing dynasty remains in control until 1911. Really? That's really late. Dang. Yeah. They, the Qing dynasty, if you look it up, very powerful. That's when things hit the fan. But also they maintain a feudalistic society with mm-hmm. with noble people being basically in charge and trickling downwards. But without a lot of agricultural base, you got to wonder how that really works. If it's just like rich people getting themselves off in the capital city. Yeah. Um, and, and they are not very invested in their land development as much as they are as being rich together, it seems. So Qing Dynasty falls in 1911. Mongolia declares independence. The Republic of China is like, no. Uh, and then this... Uh, political leader, his name is Bogd Khan. He's like our third figure here. He is a ruler of Manchuria and Mongolia, that northern region, so he knows both. And he's like, Mongolia should be on their own. And China still is like, we don't think so. And he's he works with the Russians. So the October Revolution in Russia um, causes the Russians to be like, well, Mongolia could be communist too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinese occupation, so Chinese are like, we still want this, we're going, they also had a treaty, and they're like, this treaty is invalid, you can't be alone. That's what the Chinese say to Mongolia, and Mongolia's like, rude. (laughs) Um, Chinese occupy Mongolia, and then white Russian troops go into Mongolia and defeat Chinese forces with Mongol support. So with a helping hand from Russia, they get China out of there, and then Mongolia's like, they declare independence again in 1921, uh, and then, but they're very closely aligned with the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. Because Bolshevik Russia supports the establishment of communist Mongolian government and the army. Um, so that's kind of like where we see modern Mongolia forming was very much under the hand of communism and Russia. Interesting. Um, never, they got the fingers in the pies. When I hear in Mongolia, I never think of communism or the Soviet Union. And there's that's a reason for that. Yeah, it's like one of those, because like when I think about communism, I do think very much of the Western Soviet bloc. But yeah, Mongolia is right under the other half of Russia, so. And they're close to North Korea, but still, I just never think of them as yeah. communist. Uh, so as we go into history, Bogd Khan is the leader throughout all of this. He's a figure, a guiding light, if you will. But he dies under. Um, he has, I think it was like a lung thing, maybe lymphoma, mm-hmm. maybe also killed by the Russians. Uh, And then the Mongolian People's Republic was established. We know that's a commie name for sure. Um, They're not all like their leaders weren't all communists, but they were pan-Mongolists. So um, people believed in an all-Mongolian government. Mm 
the Soviet Union forcefully establishes communist regime under the leader Korlugin Choibalsam. There's a lot of t- like, sorry, Mongolia about these names. It's difficult. Uh, and then this guy institutes a collectivization of livestock, destruction of Buddhist monasteries, and brings in Stalinist repressions. What the fuck? <laughs> also, like, when you have a collectivization of livestock, I mean, they're nomadic people. Like, how yeah. much collectivization can you do on land that does not grow things? <sighs> anyway, Soviet Union pre- prevents reunification of the Mongol people um, from all sides because they don't want anybody to rise up against the Soviet Union. And then uh, during the establishment of the People's Republic of China, both countries have mutual recognition on October 6, 1949. So, yeah, China's like, People's Republic of China, also communist. Mongolia, you are a separate country. We yep. get it. Uh, but then the Republic of China uses their Security Council veto, the only time they've ever used it, to stop them from joining their UN. What the fuck? Just to be dick. So it's like, it's, it's still basically China, is what they were saying. And then they're like, no, we're not. So they don't let them join the UN until 1961, when, the UN, when Mongolia joins the UN along with Mauritania, because Mauritania was petitioning to join. And then, like, Mongolia's like, well, if they get to join, we get to join. Yeah. And then no one in the security council is like, they're like, that makes sense. If Mauritania counts, then Mongolia should count. Yep, they put in all those M countries at the same time. So that brings us kind of into modern Mongolia. Uh, during the collapse of the Soviet Union, this brings the Democratic Revolution in 1990 um, in Mongolia. So collapse in 89, Democratic Revolution in 1990 yep. introduces a multi-party system and a market economy. So the good, that good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they have a new constitution in 1992. Constitution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing some nice fake German. Uh, in 19- and so now it's just Mongolia. It's not the People's Republic of Mongolia anymore. And then the first non-communist elections happened in 1993. And then their parliamentary elections for the first time happened in 1996. Now they're a member of APEC. Which is the Asian something, um, something. I also learned that like three, I mean, 30 or 300, uh, a, maybe 300, a lot of people migrate and um, from Mongolia and work in South Korea. So it's like, yeah. Very interesting how they've grown economically and um, looking for that urbanization, that kind of modern change. Okay. So that was our quick and dirty Mongolia. Very There's quick. so much more to say about it. Um, but I feel like, again, like most of the country's history is taught through its like significant leaders, um, heavy influence from China, especially, and then Russia a little bit, um, very interesting place. I think when you want to look more about like tribal traditions too, a lot of like things that are passed down that way, it would be a whole other thing. There's so many layers to this history. Plus we didn't even get into like the revolutionary practices of like why the mongols were a good empire because like they had stirrups they learned how to like ride a saddle a certain way and like twist in their saddle and shoot arrows at the same time like mm-hmm. I know there's lots of little distinct historical details that we could spend hours and hours and hours on um yeah all right i think it's time for our first break let's get to it <laughs>
back to the world as we know it, let's kick things back off after our historical discussion of Mongolia with a trip to Kiki in the flag corner. Oh, my favorite segment. Uh, all right, so the flag of Mongolia is a vertical tricolor with two reds in the sides and blue in the middle. The blue stripe, the blue stripe is described as the eternal blue sky, and the red stripes symbolize thriving forever. The basically like the discerner, the, the number one feature I would say of the Mongolian flag is called the Soyombo symbol, and it's on the left red stripe, so closest to the flagpole if you were hanging it. And it's, it's in yellow and it's a geometric abstraction that represents fire, sun, moon, earth, water, in a round shape as a dualist aspect. Kind of, it's a yin-yang yeah. in the middle. Um, and so this this has been adapted. It was adopted in 2011 with as it currently stays with just some changes of the shades of blue and yellow on it. Uh, and before this boy, it had a communist star above the Soyombo in the final 27 years of the Mongolian People's Republic. But they nixed that when they're like, we're not communists anymore. Shut up. Yeah. Leave us alone. Yeah. So I've always wondered what that Soyumbo meant. I didn't even know it was called a Soyumbo. It's so striking. It's And I could see like how all of it fits together. It's striking. It's beautiful. I like it. It's a cool flag. Cool flag. Good job, Mongolia. Good flag. Five not out of five. like, what was the boring flag we looked at the other day? Ouch. Let's not call any Never flags mind. boring. <laughs> okay. Um, but you know what flag I'm talking about. I know, I know about. what you mean, yeah. I was like, okay. Um, so let's uh let's talk about what we think about Mongolia. You can talk about um, that movie. Uh, yeah, so let's do some cultural discussion. Yeah, um, some, some cult disc. Some cult disc. I watched a film, junior year of high school, an IB film class, called The Cave of the Yellow Dog. It's, a, it's in 2005 it came out. It's a Mongolian-German film. Uh, written directed by a Mongolian person. I'm not going to pronounce his name. The last I think name it's is... Bayam Basurin Dava. Dava. Um, it was a fantastic movie. Um, the what I remember most about it now is like that striking, um, like portrayal of like day to day life. Like it shows the nomadic culture. It shows like like the yurt and like packing up and moving and just like. Like it's not like not not the desolate not the desolateness of the land, but like just the amount of open space and like the beautiful like unique cinematography of living in Mongolia. Um, the movie itself is like very fable like. Um, it's all about this dog. Um, I'm not gonna spoil it, but it's um, it's very rooted in like Mongolian like symbols and stuff like that. Very very good, worth a watch. Um, having viewed it, I now have a, I can picture life in Mongolia much more than I could otherwise or before. Um, other than that, there's tons of fascinating stuff about Mongolia. Um, just how strange it is of a place. I don't, th- I, don't think th- I don't think there's a lot of corollaries to it in terms of like life in the United States. Like Ulaanbaatar is like the world's coldest city. Like it's really, mm-hmm. really cold. And like I think I think 250 out of days of the, out of every year are like overcast. It's like a very strange place to live. But I get why you'd want to be a nomad there, I yes. guess. Like, it doesn't seem like there's a, it's fun to settle there, necessarily. But when you could be, like, with the land and move according to where it's nicest or best or, or where you want to go, I get the appeal of a nomadic lifestyle, and I honestly think more people should, like... I wish there was, like, a way to live nomadically in the United States without being just homeless. That's, that's a good point. Um... Some more like geography, climate stuff. There is a um, there's a natural disaster that's unique to Mongolia. No one else in the world. Ooh, that's cool. It's called the Zud, the Z U D, 
and it happens when large proportions of the country's livestock um, uh, die due to starvation or freezing temperatures, and this leads to like ep- economic upheaval for like the pastoral nomadic population. And this happens because I mean, just to, like they have like a really yeah. bad winter or something. Um, yeah, yeah, those average like high percentage of the, high percentage of the year is like cloudless, um, overcast. Um, oh wait, no, no, never mind. Cloudless means there's no. Yeah, it averages crack. it averages mostly cloudless days, um, and then Ulaanbaatar is where it has that really, really. Extreme, That's where all the clouds go. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, I think it's fascinating. They have um, <laughs> they don't have a lot of marmots or like small like um, uh, mammals. But they have uh, a lot of camels and those like very nomadic um, mammals on this like on the step. Um, yeah, those like those uh, Bactrian camels, horses. Um, they have a lot of not falconry, but like people like eagles. Using eagles yeah, to I was going to bring up Mongolia. Um, in my things like hunting with eagles. Oh yeah, it's cool. Um, again, with the Sean Yu from Mulan being a villain who hunts with a falcon. Yeah. Um, falconry and hunting with eagles is a very cool thing where you can train birds to hunt. Um, it happens in Game of Thrones with uh, what's his name? Stannis's bird. Stannis's bird. Yeah, what? Stannis has a bird called Proudwing that he, in the books. Yeah, in the books, and he nurses it back to health. Uh, and then Robert's a big dick about it. Nah, but, it but falconry has been a noble art in Europe, um, but especially in Mongolia. I'm like, I guess we could probably say it was probably carried there from Europe, uh, training birds to do really cool stuff. Um, other stuff about Mongolia, just little facts here and there. Um, they, their population is growing, and 59% rather of their total population is under the age of 30. So they're very, very young, um, and they're growing. And there's a lot of strain on the economy because the young people don't want to keep going into this nomadic pastoral life. They want to move to like. They wanna, that's that's why they want to live in South Korea and work. So they want to move to the city of Ulaanbaatar. I mean, um, there's a lot of tension there. Um, Imagine getting a Wi Fi signal. In a yurt in the middle of the plains would be difficult. Um, probably, that's, I, that's I can imagine stupid. that. I think um, I can remember one interesting thing from the documentary I watched about Mongolian is like, this cuisine thing, where they would get a I can't remember if it was a goat or some kind of small mammal, and they would like you know they would they would, uh, they would skin it you know and they would have the entire carcass and they would like take out the bones and they would stuff the whole thing with like really really hot rocks and meat and they would okay. like let it cook by burying it and it was like really really fascinating um it's really really communal one of those types of cuisine that could only be passed down through like lots of knowledge from an, other, an older generation um what else you got Kiki discussion Mongolia uh uh I keep hearing about, like, I forget. Maybe our listeners can tell me. But I remember seeing it on Tumblr, like, years ago, where there's, like, this young girl who won something or is the leader of something, and she could hawk, and she rode a horse, and she did all – and shoot an arrow. I don't know. It was this very cool thing that I remember. Uh, let, listeners, if you know what I'm talking about, let me know. Eventually, I'll figure it out, probably. But I thought of all I have to say about um, Mongolia right now. I am going to read several books on Genghis Khan, and in a later episode, I'll give you an update on all the things I know about him. Because uh, what a what a, a guy. All right. Yeah, fascinating stuff. I think Mongolia is very, very interesting. Um, 
the more I read about it, the more I just learn that, man, this place is one of the most foreign to, I think, the average American than mm-hmm. almost anywhere we've talked about. It is, like, the most, like, looking at a modern nomadic country, or, like, where 30% of the country is nomadic, is something that I don't think many people even know is a thing. People assume that that's, like, a primitive lifestyle that people don't do anymore, but it's a very active thing that many people are doing. And, like, we'll see nomads more also when we look at more Middle Eastern countries. um, And when we get into the other stans in these mountain regions. um, Because I think it's just so interesting and some of it is so appealing to me. All right. What's your post-FR rating, Kiki? Post-FR rating? What did I start with? I want to say it was a three or four. I I think I gave myself... I feel like I still don't know anything about Mongolia. I'm going to give myself a four. I think I gave myself a two. I think I'm going to stay there. Man, we scratched the surface. Yeah. Um, I underestimated how much work we go into Mongolia, and this is my fault as a, a white colonizer bitch. That's true. That's fair. But I'm just kidding. Um, it's one of those countries where you, we know the big story beats and we hit them, mm-hmm. and then we go, oh, shit. There's a lot of depth in blank. We yeah, didn't that's like because Genghis for. Khan's story is insane. Yeah. Like I think you could have like a three-hour episode. And there are there are movies about yeah. it. There are docs. There's books oh, yeah. about it. Um, I think if we did an episode per se on like Italy, we would find some of the same problems where we'd say, all right. Roman Empire. Let's cover that bad boy. Yeah. And then immediately proceeding and after it, we would kind of like get a little bit out of the depth because we spent so much time on the big boy. Mm-hmm. That's like when we talked about uh, the Czech Republic focusing almost exclusively on the Bavarians. Bohemians? Bohemians. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, I feel like that's the trap of this podcast, but we still, we still try to do our best. To make it we digestible. Have to, we have to hit the stuff that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Because you want to hear the interesting parts of history. But it can't be the interesting parts from the perspective of, oh, they're interesting because we're white and Western. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's wrap this puppy up. All right, let's do it. Plug it up. All right, you can find us on Twitter at, at the World Podcast. Uh, send out tweets about episodes and stuff like that. I often send out Twitter polls that I hope people engage in. <laughs> Oftentimes they don't. Uh, and uh, you can find us our, on our Facebook page, which is uh, The World of the Note Podcast on Facebook.com. Please give us a follow. Please write us for a review. If you review us, we will t- rank your hotness. And you should please just, it helps us to get more listeners when people write reviews and, and subscribe. So we'd really appreciate it if you just throw us a little bone here, guys. Also, feedback. We like also, feedback. And we want feedback. We want to know what we're doing right. Um, but more we want to know what we're doing wrong so we can make it better we can fix it we don't want anybody listening to us and be like these fucking assholes I hate listening to them because what we want but I still do (laughs) yeah but I still do for some reason (laughs) like we don't I don't want people to stop listening to us because they don't like something I want to find out what they don't like and fix it so that we because if someone else has the same problem I I want to make this a good podcast Um, and so does Brad I guess too no that's fair it's a good assumption so uh, that's our plugs haven't read anything new since we last recorded, which was... Before Christmas. Oh, yes, before Christmas. I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> guess, guess, transparency, <laughs> we're recording two in a day. The lies. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we can't maintain this image for you. Peel back the veil. Uh, have, have you done anything in the past hour that I don't know about? Um, we didn't talk much about 
in our last episode of New Zealand about what was personally going on, but that's okay because yeah, nothing. We are, we're still in that afterglow of finishing our very hard semester of grad school. Um, we're getting into the holidays. Also, Brad is wearing a blanket like a giant scarf right now. Yes, and I love it. Uh, I'm a very <laughs> cold boy. Um, yeah, and we're, we're just enjoying that. We're enjoying getting to do our podcast again after hiatus months. Um, Sorry, I'm going to take a picture. I'm going to post this on our Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so go to Twitter. Pod Goblin. <laughs> Pod Goblin. Um, all right. Thanks again, folks, for listening to The World As We Know It. This concludes our episode on the country of Mongolia. You can catch us next week for the country of Sierra, Sierra Leone. Leone. And, and until, until then, by our shy. shy.